Hello, hello, and welcome to Coming Down Hot. I'm your host, Sally Kenyon. So since the inaugural episode, many, many people have asked me the all-important question, what is coming down hot? And the answer is quite simply, it is a kitchen term for when you are walking behind others in the kitchen with something hot or even heavy in your hands, and you have to announce yourself so that no one will move into your path. I chose this phrase as the title for my podcast quite simply because I think it's a phenomenal double entendre. Aside from being a very practical and necessary term for my work as a chef, I love the meaning it gives to the work women are putting forth in the industry. It's important. It's hot. It demands our attention. Don't get in my way, or as we used to say, quite macabrely, I'll burn you and laugh, meaning I'm serious. Now, the theme for this second episode is memorable moments. The format here is a bit unconventional as I've deconstructed two chapters into four parts, all featuring two very amazing women, Jane Lawrence and the very delightful Veronica Hinkie, a food writer for the Chicago Tribune. So, without further ado, I present Coming Down Hot, Memorable Moments. So while I was exploring the theme for this episode, memorable moments, it dawned on me that there was really no possible way that I could create it without including some of the tales of dining and travel around the world from my very own sister, Jane Kenyon Lawrence. My sister, who is eight years older than I am, is really one woman for which I have a lot of respect. From my perspective, she has so admirably paved the way for my foray into life by pretty much adhering to her own standards and following her own itinerary, leaving behind really much calmer waters for her little sister to sail. Now, right out of college, and I may be condensing the timeline a bit, my sister landed this amazing job with a travel company out of St. Louis called Intrav. I think her position as travel director would best be described as a sort of travel liaison for these groups of people who signed up for these prearranged tours on a global scale. Danube River cruises, safaris in Africa, adventures in China, trips that went above and beyond the tour bus transported 15 countries in 10 days standard. I can so clearly recall some of her more exotic escapades, like horseback riding under the moonlight among the pyramids in Egypt, or holding koalas at the Sydney Zoo after hours, or offering me to Maasai warriors for a king's ransom of no less than 20 goats and at least 15 cows. Pretty sure she was kidding about that. But the question for me then becomes when one is in such extraordinary employ, how is one transformed on any level by such magic and romance and even the sobering realities of the world in a life this well-traveled? So in the interest of this particular endeavor, I sought to discover not only the answer to that question, but 
to get her perspective on what made the food and drink extraordinary as well. I managed to catch up with her one day long enough to have a pretty in-depth conversation about her travels, the eats, the drinks, and a bit of the philosophy behind what makes we Kenyans tick. And along the way, to my surprise, we found a little reminiscence about some of the historical events that shaped the world that we grew up in. And quite unsurprisingly, a little bit of the giddiness about life that only two sisters can share. Okay, so I'm here with my lovely sister, Jane Kenyon Lawrence. Welcome to Coming Down Hot. Hello, sister. <laughs> Hello, sister. I have a ton of questions because you've been around the world and I, 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 I. It's true. And uh, since this episode is all about memorable moments in food, I'm pretty sure going to kind of bet the farm, mom and dad's farm on this one, that you have had some pretty memorable food moments in your traveling career. This is true. <laughs> this is completely true. Some good, some not great, uh, but all memorable. Uh, yes. So, I mean, let's just do an easy one. Like, what's the best glass of champagne that you've ever had in your travels? Well. Since you love champagne. Yes, I do love champagne. Well, you know, I don't know that it was the best, but the moment, the memory and the moment was when I got to do the around the world on the Concorde, which doesn't even fly anymore. Uh, of course, every time you got on or off that plane, they serve champagne. So I would say the most memorable champagne that I ever had was probably on the Concorde. Many <laughs> yes. glasses. A lot of it. Oh, and a champagne. lot of different kinds. Yeah. But uh, it was always the ceremony of that and just the um, the opportunity, I mean, to even be on the plane, but certainly to take the plane around the world um, was something pretty amazing. And obviously now, because you can't do it anymore, uh, it makes it even more special. We're mere two minutes into this thing, and my sister throws out one of the most perfect examples, I think, of romance and travel and history combined. The Concorde. You know, there are some of you listening who may not even know about the Concorde, and others of you who may have completely forgotten about it. So if you permit me a moment to indulge and totally geek out, thank you. It's hard for me not to get nostalgic at the mere mention of this aircraft. It was a one-of-a-kind airplane that flew supersonic across the Atlantic, mostly, not exclusively, from 1976 until its retirement in 2003. It was built as a joint venture between French and British aircraft engineers. And the Concorde was not only a magnificent engineering marvel, but it was also its own unique 
form of luxury. It got you to Europe and any other destination, really, in about half the time of a standard overseas flight, flying at Mach 2 at 60,000 feet with white tablecloths, French champagne, French chocolate, filet mignon with truffles for meal service. I mean, it really did so in absolute style. And all for a mere $8,000 per round-trip ticket. Intrav, my sister's company, really created a fantastic trip in its Around the World on the Concorde. It was a 23-day excursion originating on the west coast of the United States and then circumnavigating the globe, finishing in New York City. Each leg from destination to destination, Honolulu, Hong Kong, Papit Tahiti, Nairobi, the then Bombay, Paris, each of those legs took less than four hours to complete. And it really was arguably one of the best trips money could buy. If you just happen to have a spare $63,000 laying around. But let's get back to it. So you spent a lot of time in Africa. Mm-hmm. Memorable food moments. <laughs> uh, there's one there, that's for sure. In Africa. Yeah. Um, or wh- several. Probably one of the biggest of my entire life was... I had the opportunity when I was living in Nairobi um, to celebrate my birthday um, with friends from Nairobi. And this particular year, they sacrificed a goat (laughs) in my honor. And they took the stomach and they kind of filled it with like the organ meats, I guess, and blood, and then they put a stick through it and put it on the fire, and it kind of swelled up. It kind of looked kind of like a charcoal softball. And nobody could eat until <laughs> I ate that. Did you have to eat the whole thing? I did not have to you eat the whole thing. You just had to have thing. a bite. No, because yeah. Because you don't... Well, you don't say no. You don't say no, ever. Particularly when they've done this, you know, just for you. Um, It was a little abrupt. (laughs) Um, But it was exciting just because they were excited. And, again, the whole ceremony of doing this for someone um, was a big deal for them. And it it was... um, it was crazy, and I am not a beer drinker at all, but on that particular night, when I realized that no one else could eat until I ate some of this, I just said, just bring me the biggest beer that you have, and I'll get through this. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't want to be a, you know, obtuse about it, but I was just... I'm like, I, I couldn't pr- just put it in my mouth and eat it. I, there was just no way. It was spongy and rubbery, and 
I just, I knew I just couldn't. And I was afraid I would embarrass myself by like gagging on her or something. But, um, you know, a cold Tuskers and, and it was, it was done. And then everybody got to eat and everybody was happy. It was all forgotten after that. Oh my God. So, but that was probably certainly in the top. That's in one of the top three, probably, of my food memories. I thought it was, for some reason, I thought it was the eyeballs. No, Lord, no. That I don't think I could ever. Even I don't care if I was the guest. Maybe that's just. Maybe that's <laughs> just like international queen legend. Or whoever it yeah. was, there's no way I could do it. It's a little Indiana Jones ish, probably. <laughs> Back in the day. Um, and it was a number of decades ago, but uh, there was a restaurant in Nairobi called the Carnivore. Oh, and, we went there. Yep, yep, we did. When we did the climb, we did. That is a memorable food moment. Yes. So that was also a, a time where there's, you know, it's like fogo de chow or whatever, right? <laughs> where they're slicing yeah. things right off the spit and bringing it to your plate. But they're a little more exotic than me. A beef. little bit, little zebra, little. Gazelle, little crocodile. Um, so, yeah, all things that you would never expect that <laughs> you would eat. Um, but that was an interesting place because they um, they did exactly that. They were grilling it, serving it from the spit, and uh, it was all, you know, game meats. The carnivore is indeed still in existence in Nairobi. When we were there in 1997, it was super popular, this open-air version of the Brazilian steakhouse. Yes, zebra, gazelle, crocodile, and topi were all on the menu, and no, it was no place for vegetarians. Our handsome waiters happily engaged in a relentless assault of serving grilled game meats from giant Maasai swords until you cried uncle by tipping over the white flag in the middle of your table. Well, fast forward 23 years, and the restaurant is still as popular as it was. Although in 2004, Wild game was no longer permitted to be served. Doesn't mean you can't get your fix of char-grilled meat. It just doesn't have the local flavor it once did. But if you find yourself in Nairobi and more than just a little hungry, I highly recommend that you give the carnivore a go. And then we... Well, the, also on that trip that we took together, you went fishing. Yeah, the, oh, yeah. Was yeah. it the Nile Perch? Yes. No, is Lake that what Victoria. it was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And then we ate what you got that mm-hmm. night for dinner. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I had uh, the opportunity to do that, go fishing in Lake Victoria. Um, that was right before we did the climb on Kilimanjaro, and we had a little dinner. Of my fish. <laughs> of your fish? Yes. I, I caught three different kind of fish, I think, in my life. One was that one. Um, I caught sunfish down in uh, Botswana. Got the worst sunburn of my entire life. And I was wearing sunscreen. Um, and then uh, in Alaska, in Ketchikan, I caught salmon. So... 
whether you lead a life of high adventure or not, sometimes the simplest comforts come from home. Whether your home be a thousand miles away in a foreign country or where you grew up. The family I lived with when I lived in Nairobi had um, a housekeeper and her name was Petty. And she had this little tiny drum that she made chapati on every like every Tuesday or something. And they were just so good. You know, it's like a combination of felt like thin naan, thick crepe, but done on this little, um, this little drum. And I lived for those days because they were so good. So again, I, I do have a you know, most of my life, I think, revolves around food, well, now that I think about it. Yeah, we're Kenyans. That's how it works. But, yeah, that was that was some of my African moments that were uh, pretty, pretty exceptional. What would you say is your favorite dessert that you've had in your travels? Mmm... Oh my gosh, that is like almost impossible to answer. But I guess in terms of sweet things, there are a couple memorable things. This was before I worked in the travel industry. I was a student. Um, I did a foreign study in Oxford, England, and during our break, we, you know, got rail passes and went to Europe and did, I don't know, 13 countries in 10 days or something like that. But we took a train and ended up in Bruges mm-hmm. at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. And there was like no, nothing was open except for this one little bakery. And I remember... Um, my friend Kathy and I went there and ordered a few things, but there was this apple, it was like an apple dumpling, and it it was small, and it was, the, the pastry felt like so smooth, like like leather gloves, or, you know, really, really smooth, and it was still warm, and it had this little fresh apple inside that had just been like baked to not mush but almost and it was perfect and I still I still remember that <laughs> but uh, in terms of dessert I I'm sure there is something I can't really I can't really think um, there's a place in Rome that had this fantastic chocolate dessert um I'll have to see, think if I can remember the name of it. But that one, that one ranked pretty high. Um, And I remember I had a really beautiful pavlova in South Africa um, at a special dinner that we did. Um, But usually it would be something that had chocolate in it, actually. Um, Would probably be among my favorite, but for some reason... I can't really pull that memory out right now. 
Have you ever tallied up how many countries you've been in in the world? Uh, I think I'm at 78. So. Wow. Which is a lot, but not nearly uh, as many as some of my friends. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, still, I mean, blessed that I've had an opportunity to go so many places. Well, it was a once- Really a once-in-a-lifetime job opportunity. And this was a job. I mean, yeah, this wasn't right. like, oh, I let's mean, just go here. I was thinking about this today, and I I think I was telling one of my friends about what you and, and Brother John used to do. Some of the major world events that you were witness to um, just because of the time and what was going on in the world. And what what was the biggest one for you? Was it South Africa and Johannesburg? Or? Yeah, that probably was it, because that was just right around the time where um, things were really happening and the big, you know, the, the whole apartheid was really coming but of course, John was in Tiananmen Square mm-hmm. when that whole thing went down. I never got to Greece because of the timing of when I was a travel director um, was when the uh, Achille Laurel. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, so that was a long time ago. Um, but after that happened, um, then they stopped, you know, doing programs to Greece. And then when I lived in Kenya, there was. Um, you know, a ton of drama because of a lot of the refugee fallout from that region, Somalia and Sudan. And uh, I remember there was like a a mother's sit-in, like they were went on a hunger strike or something, and all the mamas were like sitting in the town center or something, and, you know, streets were closed. <laughs> and so... Um, yeah, I mean, periodically um, got into areas where there was a lot happening, but in retrospect, nothing like what goes on in the world today, you know. I was so fortunate, got to do the good bit of traveling before, you know, uh, the world shifted as it has currently. So, but I don't think that'll stop me from traveling. I still. Still have the itch to do it. There's still more places to go, more food to eat. Absolutely. Um, it is my observation that we owe it to ourselves to expand our world, our consciousness, our experiences. It allows us to define ourselves as the unique individuals that we are. And it doesn't have to be on a grand global scale to unfold our innermost being in magical ways. But it does require a certain amount of curiosity, desire, and a hunger for new information. When one steps even a bit outside of one's comfort zone to try new things, the tapestry of life gets woven with a brand new thread, like a pinball. Our path is forever altered in the best possible way. Looking back on it, There's next to nothing that I would change about my years on this mortal coil. Not a bite, not a sip, not an experience. Talking with my sister certainly solidifies the notion that we've grown up 
as participants of life in the richest possible way. As a family who loves and enjoys the celebrations of each other and those around us. I'll be back with part two of my conversation with my sister in just a moment. <music> 